Uh, we're continuing our series in Second Peter, uh, chapter three now, um, and the kind of the over- overarching theme of Second Peter has been the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How knowing Jesus is the thing that will rescue us and save us and get us through some trials. And Peter has been uh, predicting this time when Jesus will return. The coming and power of the Lord Jesus would come. The destruction of the ungodly will happen. Uh, But one of the things that uh, when we come to these kind of passages is we're dealing with a topic known as eschatology. And eschatology comes from the eschaton, which is the Greek word for the end. And it means the study of the end times. And so Christians have, all down through history, had varying opinions of what the end times looks like and what's being described in this, uh, especially here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, what we have to do is when we come to the scriptures, we need to come to the scriptures with uh, the presuppositions that were around when the author wrote the book. Because if we come with our own 21st century understanding, it's like when you come to the end of a movie and you didn't see the rest of the movie and you start asking the person that watched the whole movie a whole bunch of questions. You kind of pepper them and annoy them because you don't know the context. Uh, but sometimes you can even come to misunderstand what went on before if you only come in to it now with our presuppositions and our way of viewing it. Now, I might not convince you to read this passage differently because I take what would be a minority opinion in our culture, but it was not a minority opinion in the history of the church. And so wish me luck. I hope we all come out of it happy and excited. And if you disagree with me, you can tear my sermons to shred at the end of it. Uh, But I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. Number one, uh, remember the gospel in hardship. Uh, Number two, the promise of his coming. And number three, the destruction of the ungodly. So number one, remember the gospel in hardship. So we're just going to read the the first three verses of 2 Peter chapter 3. It says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior of, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now Peter recognizes that in both of the letters here, there's been some repeated themes. There's been some things that have come up again and again and again. And yet Peter isn't phased to repeat these things over and over, especially when something important is on the line. Like when we go into an exam, for instance. You kind of do want to go over things again and again and again and again because something important is about to happen. You're going to be in a world of trouble if you've only gone over your content once. Or maybe you're a savant and you'll be fine, but the rest of us mere mortals, we have to go over it again and again. When there's important things on the line, this information is important. You knuckle down, you get to work because the future, the success of your life might be in this one exam, you know, the final exam to get your degree. And so what Peter is saying is that this information, you absolutely have to know it. And I'm going to repeat myself over and over again, because this content has to get into your bones. He doesn't want to leave any stone unturned. He wants the church to get a good solid grasp of what's to come. And when it does, they're not going to be left in the dark. And what does he want to remind the church? Well, firstly, the predictions of the holy prophets. When the prophets of the Old Testament predicted the coming Messiah, it wasn't merely a prediction of salvation, but always with it a prediction of judgment. It was two sides of the same coin. The Messiah will come and save, and the Messiah will come and judge. The Messiah will come and bring judgment upon the covenant breakers. You can see that in Zechariah 13, for instance, in verses 7 to 9. And Jesus will take this and describe it of himself in the moment when he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember this. 
It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So salvation will come, but judgment will come. Two thirds of the people will perish, but one third of the people will be saved. And the one third that is saved have to go through fire to be saved. And God will say to them, you are my people. He will create a new people that will be called, we will find out later, by a new name. In Zechariah, there are all these amazing passages of salvation. We see a, a fountain later will open up to cleanse them from their sin. That God will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And yet for those who break the covenant and kill the Messiah, if they don't repent, they're going to perish up to here, two thirds of the Jews. This is a harsh judgment, a very harsh judgment. Peter will quote in Pentecost, from Joel chapter 2 and say, uh, you see these signs, the people speaking in tongues, all of the outpouring of the gifts. You see what's happening right now? Joel prophesied about this. He says this in Joel 2, 28 to 32. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Peter is saying, what you're seeing happening right now in this early church this is the fulfillment of it, what you're seeing right in your face. But what does Joel continue to say in the next verse, verse 30? And I will show wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. We see the same pattern. Salvation in the new covenant and destruction of the covenant breakers. It's bold, vivid, prophetic language denouncing those who break covenant with God. And these signs and wonders were a testimony to the covenant people that there would be judgment to come. In, in that passage in Malachi that we all read together, the Lord himself, it says, comes to the temple. And when did the Lord come to the temple? When Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and overthrew all the people that were selling and trading in there. And he came to the temple and what did he do? He declared judgment upon that temple. Not one stone will be left upon another. He purifies the temple. He brings salvation and judgment. He will save those who love him and judge those who do not fear him. And Peter wants to remind the church that in the near and approaching coming of the Lord Jesus, when the heavens and the earth are judged by fire and columns of smoke, to remember the holy commandment delivered through the apostles. What is the holy commandment? The gospel. Repent and believe. That's what the messenger came, John the Baptist he came to say, repent. Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter calls it the way of truth. He calls it bringing the nations into obedience to the gospel. It is the good deposit that the apostles, they preach and they teach. This is the holy commandment. Believe in Christ. Be saved. Call upon his name. For he is coming with vengeance. And the gospel in the early church was not merely one of good news. We think of the gospel as merely good news. But when there's good news, you have to ask the question, well, why is it good? Because there's some bad news. If you don't accept the good news, there's a pronouncement of judgment on those who reject and killed their Messiah. 
It was a message to a sinful world that an atoning sacrifice happened in Jerusalem, where a man was pierced, a fountain was opened, a spirit was poured out, so that all who came to Christ would be washed of their sins and welcomed into the new covenant. And they need to be firmly established in this truth, because as time continues, people, Peter says, are going to get bolder in their mockery and derision of the Lord Jesus. You remember, they mocked Jesus. They scoffed at him. He was on the cross lying there and they mocked him to his face. They continue day after day mocking the Christians. Where is your Messiah? And Peter warns the church in verse 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Like they're going to ridicule you. They're going to make you feel ashamed. They're going to make you feel stupid. They're going to laugh at you. You're going to be the mockery of the whole world. You see, Peter says, these are the kinds of people who they follow their own desires. They have their own compass. They follow their own standards. And they refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And they'll ramp up the insults, the mockery. It's like kicking dust in their face, rubbing salt into their wounds. They're laughing at you as people take your homes away. As people imprison you. They kill your loved ones. Because you believe that Jesus is true. Peter is saying, hold on. Don't listen to those scoffers. They're missing one important thing. Jesus is coming. Verse 2. Sorry, set point 2. The promise of his coming. We're going to pick up in verse 4, just the one verse. He says, they will say, this is what the scoffers are going to say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Basically, where is your Lord? The guy that you follow, right? Look at us. We're doing well. We're doing really well. Look how much we're getting blessed. Look at everyone else. And then there's you poor pathetic Christians with your poor pathetic crucified Savior. When's he going to come? When's he going to come save you? I mean, they're going to question the return of Christ. Why? Well, Jesus said in the, in the Olivet Discourse, when he was on the mountain, he, he came up to the Mount of Olives and he looked at the city and he could see the city in full view and he declared judgment upon that city. You can read about it in Matthew 24. And they knew that Christ had prophesied that the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. They also knew that Christ put a time frame on it. Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. By the time that Peter is writing this letter, it's been around 30 to 32 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, right? The Jews had not only killed Jesus, they had stoned Stephen to death. They had beheaded the apostle James. They had flogged, beaten, imprisoned, pillaged and persecuted the church. And now the church was on the cusp of another persecution at the hands of the Romans. Up until this point, the Romans have kind of left them alone. But the emperor Nero was about to come onto the scene and things were going to get really, really rough. The apostle Paul was beheaded by Nero. Peter, likewise, was going to be crucified upside down by this emperor. The Apostle John was thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil, only to survive completely unscathed. And so, because they couldn't kill him, they exiled him off to the island of Patmos. See, the generation was passing away. Peter says, I'm going to die. He already said, the putting off of my body is coming soon. The deadline that Jesus had set was getting closer and closer and the whole generation of first believers were beginning to die. And where was the sign of his coming? Because there was no sign. Everything was going really well. See, all things were continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, apparently. 
They reassure the people that things will continue on as they always do. It's what we call normalcy bias. They underestimate the likelihood of a catastrophic event and downplay the possibility of anything bad ever happening because danger is definitely not around the corner and everyone be calm. Don't give in to conspiracy theories. Don't listen to these Christians. They're idiots. Paul likewise condemns them. He says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, this is what the Jews were saying. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. You see, the, the false teachers of uh, the time that Peter's writing, they're the same as the false prophets in Jeremiah. Peter actually compares them to the false prophets. And the false prophets in Jeremiah scoff at Jeremiah. And they, and they say, this is what they say. It says, then I said, ah, Lord God, in Jeremiah 14, 13, sorry. It says, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Everything's going to go fine. God is not coming in judgment upon Jerusalem of that day. And do you know what happened to Jerusalem of that day? Jeremiah was right. These false prophets were wrong. Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the people in that city were brought into exile. You see, the false prophets of Jeremiah's day believed that the temple and the city of Jerusalem were impervious to any kind of judgment. Hard times will come, but God would never in a million years let anything happen to his city and his temple. He is God. It will stand forever. The Jews had a similar view in the time of the early church. Even if this new covenant had come, it can't replace the Ark of the Covenant or the sacrifices of the temple or the dietary laws or circumcision. In fact, they accused the church in the book of Acts. You guys are trying to destroy the customs of Moses. You can read that in the book of Acts. This is what you have come to do. The same Jews who mocked Jesus while he was on the cross are the same Jews who mock them now. And this isn't new for the people of God. In Psalm 42 verse 3, King David says, my tears have been my food all day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Basically, you're an idiot. Your, God, your God's not going to save you. Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, this is the psalm that Jesus takes on his lips. The crucifixion, he says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These words hurled against Christ, against David in this psalm, and then the words that Christ takes to himself. And Jesus was vindicated by rising again from the dead. God did hear. God did act on their behalf. Peter is saying, don't worry. They're going to say the same thing. Actually, false teachers are rather predictable. If the Bible says something, they're going to say the opposite of it. And you can understand that the, the early church, they may be tempted to doubt Jesus. They may be tempted to deny the master who bought them because Jesus... Uh, he's, he's starting to seem to let them all down. His promises aren't secure, and the Jews who crucified Christ have never been more successful or prosperous. This will only be magnified when, when Nero shows up on the scene, right? He commands that all people everywhere in his empire come into the temple, burn a pinch of incense to him, and say, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord, because Caesar was the title of the Roman Empire at the time. You were required to worship the Roman Emperor as a god. One group got an exemption. Do you know who they were? The Jews. They enjoyed this peace with Rome. While all the Jewish Christian converts and all the Gentile Christian converts were forced to go in. And if you burn that incense, you know what they would give you? A labellum, which was a document that said you can go and uh, uh, buy and sell in the marketplace. 
See, the Jews and the Romans, they were buddies for exactly three and a half years. They enjoyed this wonderful peace as Nero persecuted the church, but then Nero kills himself. He dies. And then the Jews, a whole bunch of the radical sects, see this as an opportunity to break from the Roman Empire and then war for exactly three and a half years. And Rome would wage war on the Jews. And this is in the historical record. Rome, which I believe to be the beast in the book of Revelation, turns on the harlot, which we see is the great city, the city that Revelation tells us was the city that Christ was crucified in, Jerusalem. And she is riding on top of the beast, right? Arrayed in a garment of a priest, drunk on the blood of the saints. And John in Revelation tells us that the beast will suddenly turn on her and tear her to shreds. That's exactly what Rome did. It's my third point, the destruction of the ungodly. Verse 5, but they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, that the scoffers were claiming that nothing bad could happen to them because things are going to keep on going as always. And we know they're Jews because Peter says, really? You deliberately overlook this fact. Why? They're Jewish. They should know this. God has completely reordered the world before. He's completely changed stuff up before. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, the skies, the sun, the moon, the stars, he separated the water, he formed the land in this hydraulic process, forming it out of water. And yet the same God, that same word, destroyed that world that existed, the world that he created. He destroyed it. He punished the sins of that people. The inhabitants of that world perished. And the cosmic world order that then existed vanished completely. And God formed a new world out of that old world, a completely new world. He reshaped it. Peter is saying, you don't think that God can do that again? The same word that destroyed the world in Noah's flood is the same word, Peter says, that will destroy the heavens and earth in fire. And Peter is paraphrasing Jesus here. He says in Matthew 24, 34 to 35, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Peter is saying that same word, the word of God, Jesus, that punished the world in Noah's day is the same word that will see this heaven and earth pass away. My word of judgment, Jesus says, will prove true. They will never pass away, but note this, heaven and earth will pass away. Mark my words. So what is Peter saying when he says that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire? Now, this is unfortunately the part of the sermon where it's going to get really nerdy and boring, but I hope that I can keep you guys with it because we're going to be talking about the way that the ancient people understood the concept of heaven and earth. Uh, We at least have to understand this so that if you have a divergent view from what I'm going to put before you guys, at least you know that the ancient understanding of it is is what what I'm going to go into now. Um, We normally link the phrase heavens and earth with Genesis 1. We tie it to the material world, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, But the Jews had a very different understanding of what the heavens and earth was. And I'm going to quote now from Paul Penley. And uh, it's up here. And please read along with me. Just pay attention. This stuff is gold. It's awesome. He says, Jews did not always mean the physical universe when they spoke of heaven and earth together. In Jewish literature, the temple was a portal connecting heaven and earth. 
They called it the navel of the earth, or the, the belly button of the earth. <laughs> it's kind of connected by an umbilical cord, the heavens and the earth. Uh, the gateway to heaven, you see that in Jubilees 8.19 or 1st Enoch uh, 26.1. Just as the Mesopotamian tower in Genesis 11, you remember the Tower of Babel? Uh, the temple connected God's realm to where humans lived. And to reflect this belief, the Jerusalem temple had been built to look like a microcosm. That word microcosm is like a miniature. So think of like a mini, uh, miniature of the universe. And we typically overlook how literally true the temple hymn preserved in Psalm 78.69 is. It says, He built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which He has founded forever. The actual holy place and most holy place inside the temple building were constructed like earth and heaven. The court outside represented the sea. According to Josephus, two parts of the tabernacle were approachable and open to all, but one was not. He explained that in so doing, Moses signifies the earth and the sea, since these two are accessible to all. But the third portion he reserved for God alone, because heaven is inaccessible to men. And you can read about that in Josephus' work, Antiquities of the Jews. The veil between the accessible and inaccessible parts of the temple was designed to represent the entire material world during Jesus' day. Outside the temple microcosm of heaven and earth, the courts looked like the sea. Numbers Rabbah 13.19 records, the court surrounds the temple just as the sea surrounds the world. In Talmudic tradition, rabbis described how the inner walls of the temple look like waves of the sea. So you kind of picture it in your mind, you've got the walls and they look like the sea, right? And then inside you've got the land and then right in the holy place where God resides is heaven. And so it's a little microcosm of the earth, just like we have our area with the land and then we're all surrounded by the sea. All the land masses are surrounded by the sea. And from heaven... Uh, sorry, the earth, uh, from heaven and earth inside the temple, you looked out at the sea surrounding the world. Why? Ancients believed the earth had one giant landmass surrounded by sea. The temple reflected that cosmology. The accessible section of the temple and the surrounding courts embodied both the landmass and sea believed to comprise the earth. The most holy place was heaven where God's presence reside. And so this isn't just the, the way that the Jews of Jesus' day interpreted scripture. So this is the way they viewed the phrase heaven and earth. They were thinking temple. This establishment, this way that God relates to the world. God relates to the world in this way. Israel, this is how God relates to us. You come to us. You worship at our temple. We are a light to you. We are the center of everything. And this is the established order of this world. That's what the Jews thought. Now, have a listen to what some of the things in the Old Testament say. Leviticus 26, 17 and 20. He says, I will set my face against you. This is if you break the covenant of God. He says, if you break my covenant, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make, listen, your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. See, when God talks about judging his people for covenant unfaithfulness, he says, I will make your heavens like iron, your earth like bronze. God is going to judge his people and it's this great cosmic language that he applies to them. Isaiah 51, 15 to 16, it's probably the most important passage to kind of wrap your mind around this. So uh, I know this is real nerdy, but just like, let me, let me keep you for a little bit. He says, I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I put my words in your mouth and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand. Listen, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. And the context is covenantal. He's saying, when I stirred up the sea, and you walked through that sea, and I called you by name. I put my words in your mouth, I've covered you. And when I did this, when I called you my people, 
I was establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. He was creating a new people, bringing forth order and government where there was confusion and anarchy. And this, the Jews understood as establishing the heavens and the earth. A new world, a new order. When he says to Zion, he says, you are my people. It's establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth. In Isaiah 24, 3 to 5, he says, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the law, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Right there, covenant breakers, Skip down to verse 19. He says, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they'll be punished. Then the sun and moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. You see that again, this great cosmic language, the heavens being judged, the earth being judged, being renamed as God brings something new forward. We have this everlasting covenant violated, broken, this dramatic language used here. The earth quaking and shaking, being split apart, uh, the transgression lying heavy upon it. This is covenantal judgment upon God's people. I'll give you a break for a second. (laughs) That's pretty heavy. If you're Jewish, you've been raised on all this. You've read Isaiah, waiting for the Messiah's kingdom. You've read the Old Testament. In their mind, God was creating a new creation when he brought Israel to himself. It's the same language that the apostles used to describe what is happening in the church. They're a new creation. They're a new people. So this is the kind of discussion that was going on in Jesus' day. This is what they believed about the temple. When Jesus said that not one stone will be left upon another, what are you saying is the heavens and the earth will pass away. That's what he's saying. And you have this representation of heaven and earth in front of you, the temple complex, this microcosm of the universe. If this temple's being destroyed, then it's all passing away. And God's giving his people a new name and he's judging the covenant breakers and a new covenant's coming in. God says in Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so we need to look at what the, what the, what the uh, Old Testament says about the new heavens and the, and the new earth. And we're going to go to the passage that Steve read out for us. Isaiah talking to the covenant people, you notice that there's still this language of salvation and judgment. In Isaiah 65, 15 to 18, he says, You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, and his servants he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. See, it's interesting that God's going to bring judgment upon covenant breakers upon his people, but he's going to call them now by another name. Just as Isaiah 51 said, when he established the heavens and the earth, he saved Israel out of Egypt. This is a new heavens, a new earth, a new order, a new way to deal with mankind. The new people of God will rejoice and be glad. It will be a people of good cheer, a people of salvation. And you might say, well, but isn't the new heavens and the new earth what happens right at the end of time? Isn't that the final state? Isn't that, are we waiting for that? How could we be in it? now? How could we be all things being made new now? 
Well, I don't, I don't want to unpack all of Isaiah 65 because it's, it, it's dense, but what you find is that death is still pl- taking place in Isaiah 65. So, in whatever future state, if you believe it's a future state in the new heavens and new earth, death is still taking place. People are still dying. Children are still being born. Houses are still being built. Plants are being sown. And even in Isaiah 66, 19, evangelism is still taking place in the new heavens and the new earth. We see this language in the New Testament as well. The fire that Paul is describing, uh, Peter is describing here as the fire of the destruction of Jerusalem. See, when the temple crumbled, uh, the gold melted down the sides of the temple as the, uh, the temple went up in flames. And the, 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 the fiery furnace that it was was so hot that all the gold melted off the temple and it went down into all the cracks. And the Roman soldiers, when the fire kind of died down and they could start approaching the stones, went through meticulously and picked all the gold out of every single crack within that temple and literally removed every single stone of the temple. It literally came true what Jesus said would happen to that city when they put the entire city to the sword. See, Jesus, the whole point of all this is that Jesus is true. What he said would happen to Jerusalem, happened to the city, down to every last word. It was the end of that world order. God does not deal with people through that temple anymore. You do not bring sacrifices to God anymore. You do not go to the Levitical priesthood anymore. Where do you go? The church. A new way, a new order. This is how God deals with us in the new heavens and the new earth, as God, through us, is making all things new. Slowly, like a mustard seed, tiny, insignificant at the start, but it grows. You see in the book of Daniel, like a a stone that was cut without human hands and it shatters the statue that represents the kingdoms of men. And then it grows from this tiny little pebble into this enormous mountain that encompasses the whole earth. Jesus says it's like a woman who works leaven through a little bit of bread. See, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Slowly, but surely. And God deals with us through his son, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom, the church. We've come to a new heavens and new earth. And it's working its way through this world. We still face hardship. There's still great battles to be fought. There's still people that need to be won through the gospel. There's still nations that need to be discipled. But what we must know is that the people of Peter's day were awaiting this new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwelled this new way that God was going to deal with humanity as they were the foundation, laying the foundation of the church that would replace the system, the mosaic system, as the dominant way that God deals with us. And so the new has come. Be encouraged. Remember that Jesus was true, that he was a true prophet. Everything he said came to pass. And we have a bright future ahead of us when Jesus uh, finally returns to take his church, his bride, to himself. There is some hardship. If you read Revelation 20, there's going to be, uh, Satan's going to be released from prison and then fire's going to come down and destroy this order and then another order's going to come in. But that's a whole other can of worms that I'm not going to open. How about I pray for us? Um, I hope I've given you a lot of food for thought. Our Father, your word is wonderful. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is uh, deep and vast and rich. Uh, there's so much there, so much to unpack, so much to understand. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom to interpret your word correctly, that through debate and through uh, chatting things through, that we'll come to a sharper understanding of what your word says, that we'll have a good understanding of the context in which your word is written, 
and that we'll have a good expectation for what will happen into the future and our trust in your son Jesus as he sits ruling and reigning in heaven at your right hands, bringing all the nations under his feet, ruling them with a rod of iron. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would uh, equip us, encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.